Welcome to another deep dive episode of the Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. This is where we will dig deeper into the content from Sunday's sermon, consider even more ways of thinking about the Bible and how to live it, and encourage one another to follow Jesus more closely together. I'm your host, Will Barlow. Let's dive in. Well, hey, everyone. Uh, welcome back to another Compass Christian Church Weekly Sermon Podcast Deep Dive. Uh, this is your host, Will Barlow, and I have the pleasure of sitting down with uh, John Ely today. John, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with me. Uh, normally, we do these kinds of interviews when someone different than me preaches, and I preached this past Sunday. So people, you might be wondering, why is Will sitting down with John Ely when he preached this last Sunday? Well, John was actually on the schedule to preach. <laughs> I think I mentioned that you were on the schedule to preach uh, the week before. And uh, then a couple of things came up. And so I ended up pinch hitting. But since you prepared so much, I thought it'd be fun uh, to, to share the deep dive, to talk about some of the stuff that we looked into, that both of us looked into, that we weren't able to use that Sunday that I wasn't able to talk about. So uh, again, thanks for joining me, John. Uh, why don't we start with uh, a little bit more about who is John Ely? Would you like to tell people a little bit more about yourself and how you ended up being a part of Compass and a little bit about your family and stuff like that? Sure. Uh, thanks for having me on your podcast, Will. Um, so let's see. I moved here to Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, what was this, like a little over a year ago, year and a half ago, um, along with my wife, Paula, I think. Some of the listeners might know her. She serves as a worship pastor at uh, Compass Christian Church. Um, and we have a two and a half year old daughter named Sophia. Um, so we we moved here a year and a half ago to help support the church. Um, it's re really, really cool story. Um, we can definitely see God's hand in the whole situation and our decision to move. Um, we have been living in in Richmond, Virginia, and uh, we're very blessed to be with family. My my parents were there, and my sister and her husband were there. Um, but we didn't have a, a great church community there that we really felt um, called to be a part of. So we were in the process of trying to build a house, or sorry, trying to buy a house, and we had been trying to do that for about a year or so. Had put a ton of offers on various houses. This was during the, the crazy, um, like post COVID housing market. Uh, we're just totally getting, um, blown away by a bunch of different offers on houses. Um, starting to get a little bit discouraged with that whole process, but then lo and behold, a few, few weeks later after we had, I think maybe gotten our seven or eighth offer on a house declined, Will uh, talked to Paula and I and told us about the opportunity here at uh, that was, I guess, emerging in Louisville to plant a a church. And uh, at that point, we basically put our house housing search on hold and like realized that that may have been why we weren't able to find a house in the first place uh, because God had something in store for us that was gonna require us to not have a <laughs> newly purchased house in Richmond, Virginia. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we answered that call and bought a house here in Louisville and moved last July. Um, really cool how God worked out uh, me being able to work remotely. So I'm, you know, I, I was able to keep my job that I had in Richmond, but work remotely here in Louisville, didn't have to make that whole transition. So that made that a lot, a lot smoother. Um, so at, at Compass, I, uh, serve on the boards. So I'm, I'm the treasurer. Um, get to handle the finances and try to steward that well. Um, and then, yeah, have the opportunity to preach once in a while. And thank you for pinch hitting for me yeah. last week. Well, for sure. Really for sure. Yeah, thinking about your guys's move here, uh, we had talked to Sean Finnegan in 
like February. And then we were starting to invite people starting in, I don't know, it was like April, May timeframe is when we really started reaching out to people. And I know y'all were one of the first people that we reached out to, if, if not maybe the first people we reached out to. Um, because Sean, Sean asked me, he said, you know, do you have a worship pastor in mind? And I was like, yeah, but I don't know if they're going to want to move. They're around family and, and all that. So um, immediately had y'all in mind. And um, I remember we were all in Salt and Light study night, uh, which is a, an online Bible study that y'all, uh, that we were all a part of during COVID. And I remember you guys talking about your house search right around the time that Sean and I were starting our first conversations about Compass. And we didn't know it was Compass at the time. We we're just talking about a church plant. And so it's one of those weird things where it's like, I knew I wanted to ask you, but I also knew it was like too early because like Becca and I hadn't officially said yes. And Sean really, a lot of the details hadn't really been divulged at that point. And so it was like, I wanted to say something for months and I couldn't say anything. And I watched you, you know, make offer after offer on houses. And it wasn't like I was praying against you. You know, I was like, I was just like, God, please just open the right door if it's if it's right for them. And um, and thankfully he shut all those doors and opened one here. So, you know, what who can who am I to argue with God? So uh so yeah, it's yeah, a, that's a great, cool story. great uh great test of trust there. Yeah. Yeah. The timing has to be right, has to be has to be right. But but we go back more than a couple of years. We go back beyond salt and light. Um, we first met y'all when we were in when we all were in uh, suburban Detroit. Uh, we went there as part of a, a stateside uh, community outreach mission program at a former church, and um, we met y'all uh, through that. And um, I always like to tell the story that you were on again, off again with Paula. And you always correct me. You were on and then you were you were took a break and then you were on. And then since then you've been on. So it's not on and off again. You were on and then you were yeah, on a break. And then yeah. Yeah, it's more like on again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's not on and off. Yeah. So we were rooting, we were rooting for y'all and uh it worked out. And that was gosh, uh that was twelve. 12 or so 11, years ago. 12 years ago. Yeah. 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 Long time so, ago. Yep. Yeah, so go way back. It's fun. It's been great having y'all here. Uh, it's great seeing uh, Sophia grow up too with all the other little kids that we have at Compass. It's, it's a, it's a joy. So well, thanks. Thanks for sharing more of your story. And, and if people want to hear more um, and also more about salt and light, which is still ongoing, even though I don't think either one of us attend anymore. <laughs> Uh, John and Anna Brown in our church uh, still run Salt and Light. Um, you did an interview with Sean Finnegan, uh, and I think you share some of your backstory there in that interview as well on Restitutio. So people can. Yeah, that was a, a few years ago. I, I don't remember the exact number of the podcast, but I think the I think it's titled Salt and Light Study Night. Mm -hmm. So that's when Paul and I kind of share our story and our background and talk about what it's like to start a a online Bible study. Yeah. And Salt Light's still thriving. For those of you listening, if you are not surrounded by a church and you'd want some some fellowship, Salt and Light's a great opportunity for that. Well, let's transition a little bit to talking about uh, Passover and the sermon from this past Sunday. Um, there's a big topic that I know we want to talk about with Firstborn, which we'll get to at the end. Uh, but before we get to the topic of firstborn, I wanted to sort of knock out a couple of these smaller things. That I thought some of these smaller details that people might be interested in. We've been referring to a couple of different resources the Bible Project has on Exodus. And one of them is Carmen Imes' excellent class that's available in the Bible Project classroom. And one of the things that she she just sort of drops it. She she mentions it for about five or so minutes um, is this idea that Passover you know, we we understand it as like God passing over the houses of the people of Israel and then the destroyer coming in and attacking the houses of the Egyptians. But what she points out is that scholars are really they don't really know what the word means, which is, I think, really fascinating. Um, and it could actually be protection, you know, um, 
there's sort of two different ways people can go with the translation. And so I wanted to ask you about that and see what you thought about, should we, should we understand this as Passover? Should we understand it as protection? Like, should we rename the whole thing or like what's going on here? Yeah. I mean, I, I hadn't actually heard of this until you, you mentioned it to me and um, I listened to that, that part of the the class where Carmen Himes talked about that. And I, I, I think it is a somewhat compelling case. Um, I think she, she mentions the verse in Isaiah 31. I think there are only four or so verses where Pesach is, is used in the old Testament. I, in the verb form. Yeah. In the verb form. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and in, is it in first Kings where, Oh, sorry. First Kings is the other usage of the word that is a, a different meaning. But there's a verse in Isaiah 30, is it 31, mm -hmm. um, where it it like clearly means protection. I don't know if you have that verse handy. Yeah, I do. Here, here's what Carmen Imes has the translation in her notes. It says, Isaiah 31, 5, like sweeping birds, thus will Yahweh of hosts protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver and rescue and I think, uh, you know, all of those words there are all, you know, they're all protection words. None of them, you know, should be translated Passover. They should, you know, they're all protection kind of words. And so, um, yeah, I think you're right. You know, there's, there's three, there's three definitions according to the dictionary of classical, classical Hebrew. One is Passover. The second one is limp or leap, which I think, like you said, come from the king's references. And the third one is protect. And and they they tell you that one and three are interchangeable. And there's only like four or so occurrences of them. And so it's like, does, does it mean that God's going to pass over the houses or does it mean that he's going to protect the houses of Israel? Um, and, you know, I, I think there's like these larger questions in the Exodus narrative about you know, how much of this is God doing? How much of it is it him allowing things to happen? And different different people throughout history have weighed in on different on different things, uh, different sides of that of that issue. Um, and so I, I think it's an interesting question. Um, I, I don't know at the end, you know, if God's allowing it, you know, he's clearly meaning for it to happen, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, uh, it's not like we can say like, oh, God's not involved with this. Like he's clearly very involved with it either way we go. But yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Um, I, I guess one of the questions that, that might, you know, someone might have if, um, with this is like, how did it get the, how did it come to be translated as Passover in the first mm -hmm. place? Um, and that was one of the questions that that I had. I, I did find an, an interesting resource on online. It's a um, a Jewish resource that that talks about some of the different options as to how that that might have come about. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think one of the ones that was was compelling um, to me, at least, goes back to the Septuagint, which um, I think most most that would listen to this are aware of that, but this is like the Greek translation of the, the Hebrew scriptures um, somewhere around like the third century BC. Mm -hmm. um, and what the the author of, um, of an article that I found called how Pesach became Passover on the Torah.com. Um, what, what he points out is that there was a um, oftentimes a, a tendency to smooth over some some of the translation difficulties with the Hebrew text in the Septuagint. He he points out how in Exodus 33, 18 through 19, it um it talks about how there's a conversation between Moses and and God. Um and Moses says, Oh, let me behold your glory. And then God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Hmm. And Septuagint, they kind of smooth over that by translating goodness as glory. So there's kind of this tendency to smooth over um, what what could be a, a difficulty or a somewhat like slight contradiction. And um, and he points to Exodus chapter 12, verse 23, where it says um, in, in his translation, it says, for Yahweh will pass through 
to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, Yahweh, Yahweh will pasak over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. So there's there's like an apparent contradiction here or difficulty. You know, is 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 God moving through to smite the Egyptians, or is it the destroyer that's moving through to smite the Egyptians? And what he points out is that, you know, the translation of Pasak into Passover at least like assigns Yahweh the the verb of passing in, mm -hmm. in the first part and the second part. So Yahweh is passing through to smite the Egyptians, and then he's passing over the door. And if you were to translate that protect, it it wouldn't like resolve that difficulty as smoothly. So I, I thought that was like a, an interesting option for, you know, like, or I guess a compelling reason as to how that could have come about. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, translators do that all the time. They, they, um, they take things and they try to smooth them out. I think a great example from even just this account, and I covered it in one of the earlier deep dives, I think last week's deep dive, is a hardening. You know, I, until I was, I mean, I'm, I just turned 38. I was 38 years old. I was today years old <laughs> when I found out that there were two different Hebrew words for hardening throughout the, the record of the plagues. Mm -hmm. And, and no English translation is going to tell you that they all use the word hardening. And those, those two words mean like complete polar opposite things. Like one of them's very positive, And one of them is, you know, what we would think of when we think of hardening a, someone's heart is a bad, it's a bad thing. And so it's, it's, you know, translators do this all the time. They, they, they simple, they try to simplify things and, and, and make those difficulties go away. And I think, uh, the more that I've learned, I don't know much about Hebrew, but the more I've learned about Hebrew and the process of translating the Hebrew scriptures, the more I think, you know, they, they put they put bumps in the road so that we labor over those things, that we think about these things. And I think I think we're meant to think about this concern of Yahweh passing over or him protecting or what does it mean that the destroyer is doing something or if Yahweh is doing something. Or if Yahweh's allowing it, then what does that mean about Yahweh and the destroyer? I mean, we're supposed to, I think, wrestle with these kinds of things. Um, and so I, I think I think it's very interesting. And I, I hope our, our listeners wrestle with it, too. <laughs> I hope you, because we're not going to solve it for you. I'm not a Hebrew expert. I'm not going to tell you it should be protect. Uh, but at the same time, if Carmen Imes is, is saying, hey, look, this is a possibility, then I think we should be thinking about it, too. Yeah, that. I agree with that. So there, there's a little bit more on Passover, uh, the word for Passover. Um, the next question I have for you before we get to the idea of the firstborn is, um, I mentioned in, in the sermon this past Sunday that Israel did not really celebrate the Passover that much in the thousand years or so after the Exodus. Um, you know, I mentioned, I think there's one that happens in the wilderness there's one that happens when they first come into the promised land. I think there's like three more that are mentioned in Hezekiah's age and Josiah's age and then in Ezra. And so you have this long period of time where there's no Passovers really mentioned and it seems like people sort of lost track of it. And so I have sort of like a chicken and the egg kind of a question for you. Uh, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Uh, do you think that more faithfulness to celebrate Passover would have led to more faithful Israelites? Or vice versa? Do you think that if they had been more faithful, they would have celebrated the Passover more? Because we know that in the history of Israel, they sort of go up and down and have these moments of faithfulness and this, these moments of disobedience, which, you know, is a huge theme of Exodus too. Uh, you know, that, that process starts in the wilderness and it continues on really until the exile. So what do you think about that? Do you think if they had celebrated Passover more, remembered what God did in the Exodus more, that would have helped them to be more faithful? Or what do you think about all that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess when I thought about this, I tried to bring it to like a modern day, I put it in a modern day Christian mm -hmm. uh, context. And so like the closest I could think of was like, would attending church regularly lead to more faithful Christians? Or in this case, like Passover was uh, like a, I think it was a once a 
once a year once a year weekly um ritualistic meal and kind of feast uh with festivities associated with that um and i i don't think it's i don't think it's clearly one or the other like i think it you know faithfulness to um to god's commandments leads you to do the things that he wants you to do which is celebrate passover and celebrating passover um and their time especially was a powerful way to remember what god um, had done for you and your people and to participate in that which would in turn lead you to be more faithful so mm -hmm. I, I think it's definitely a part of them uh becoming unfaithful i i don't know that we would say that you know because they they didn't celebrate it they they become that they therefore became more unfaithful um yeah it's a it's an interesting question i i guess i i have a question for you based on your sermon you you mentioned that uh, there's only a few Passovers recorded in the Bible. And mm. I, I think one of the conclusions you draw from that is that they probably didn't celebrate it a lot in the, the thousand or so years after the Exodus. Mm -hmm. Like, do we have, is there also, um, are there also records that talk about them not celebrating the Passover? Like how they, how they did not follow the commandment to. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, we don't have negative, like proof of the negative. We don't have it like God doesn't say like they didn't and they didn't celebrate Passover this year. Um, so, yeah, we don't know for sure. That's that's the bottom line answer is we don't know for sure. It does mention several ones of them. And I think I think it's the one in Josiah's age where it, it, it'll say something like, yeah, the Passover hadn't been celebrated like this until since the time uh, okay. of the Exodus or something like that. It's it's very strong language about like it hadn't been done like this, but Hezekiah had done one like 80 years prior to that. So it's like, clearly they had celebrated a Passover in, in the last 80 years this, or so. This wasn't as awesome yeah. as the uh, Passover years. Yeah. Ago. And, and there were periods of time, you know, we, you know, we look at this from a very modern perspective, the whole history of the Bible from a very modern perspective. We have these, paper Bibles and we have the Bible on our phone and we have the Bible on the internet, on our computers, and we have all the software and all this different stuff. And so it seems weird to us that they could have lost the scriptures, but there are periods of time in Israel's history because they would have, they were a relatively, I think, small tribe coming out of Egypt. I think they were about 20,000 people coming out of Egypt, not the 2 million that's commonly asserted. I think it's a much smaller group. And so, you know, they had a very limited number of texts, manuscripts, and they would have been written on, on, on paper, on various forms of paper and scrolls. You know, they would have been written on scrolls. And then those scrolls at times get misplaced, lost, you know, uh, they get attacked um, and things happen. And so, um, so just like generally speaking, like the general commands of God get lost. Um, I was reading with my kids tonight in the Action Bible, and they talked about um, David bringing the ark up from uh, one of the outlying cities in Israel to Jerusalem. And on the way, they, they're bringing it on the cart. And on the, cart, yep. the whole point of that story is they had forgotten that they were supposed to use the rods to carry the ark. Like, that's one of the most important commandments that God makes about uh, the tabernacle and about the ark that it was supposed to be carried on these rods and they had forgotten that. And because of that, they put the thing on the ark and the, you know, the oxen falter, they, you know, they hit a bump in the road or whatever. And the ark looks like it's about to start flying. And Uzzah makes the mistake of like trying to like hold on to the ark and make sure it doesn't fall. And he drops dead right there. And the moral of the story is like, you shouldn't forget God's like really important commandments. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, they they lost all sorts of stuff over periods of time. And then, like, in, I think it's in Ezra's day, they discover the law again. And then they he reads it out loud. And it's like the first time in generations that the people have heard the words of the law uh, from the scrolls, you know. And so, you know, we, we take it for granted that we have these, like, these Bibles and, you know, we have all these modern conveniences. But for most of the history of mankind the bible what we call the bible the the various books that make up the bible even the scrolls that make up the the old testament they were not very easy to come across and so knowledge was not i mean if you didn't pass it down if you didn't 
keep the Passover yearly, then you would lose it. If you didn't use, you know, use it, you'd lose it. So. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I just want to put a plug in for our, our friend, Pastor Victor Gluckin's uh, sermon. Don't put it on a cart. I don't know if you, you've ever heard that. I think, yeah. 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 But it's about that, that record with Uzza and the, the Ark. Yeah. Great no, sermon. That's good. Yeah, let's let's just put a general plug in for listening to Victor. I listen to Victor every week, so y'all should be listening to his sermons too. All right, so we just talked about faithfulness, Passover, how those two things are tied. We ended the sermon last week talking about the natural application of Passover, which is communion. And so talking a little bit more about faithfulness and communion, um, how does your deeper understanding of Passover affect your understanding of communion or the Eucharist? And then also like how important is it for our church to set some sort of rhythm with communion, to be faithful, to practice uh, communion, you know, sort of what do you think about the implications of remembering Passover and then remembering what Jesus did for us on the cross through communion? Like, how do you see the relationship between those two things? Yeah. Well, for me, it was, um, it was just a total, I was just totally mind blown by, understanding that like the original context of communion was the Passover and like, so that an increased understanding of Passover and what it meant to the Jews for all those years, how it like allowed them to participate in this defining moment that had like defined their people for all of history and seeing how Jesus used that, um, that context to explain his death to his followers and basically like reinterpret all of the elements of the meal or some of the elements of the meal um, with his, his body and, and his blood um, and like the meaning that his death would, would have for them. Um, it just adds a whole element that I didn't realize was there. Um, like the element of uh, like the importance of the meal, all five senses being engaged, uh, the communal aspect of it, like mm -hmm. doing this in a community um, how this is something that is not just something that you would do to remember Jesus, but is actually participating in this defining moment for all of Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, it just really like deepened my understanding of it, made it a lot richer. Um, and then, you know, there's a, a Tim Mackey sermon, um, it's called the messianic passover that i i really enjoy that where he talks about um he, he kind of puts the um the last supper within the context of, of passover and walks through what that would have been like step by step for the um for jesus's followers um he talks a lot about like the daily rhythms that the jewish people had the yearly rhythms the weekly rhythms that they had how important that was and how we've kind of lost that in mm -hmm. modern day Protestant Christianity. Uh, he talks a lot about how early Christians had, had like the, the church calendar and would, would have something that was similar to the, to these Jewish daily, weekly, yearly mm -hmm. rhythms. Um, and that would help tell the story of Christianity of, of, um, all Jesus accomplished through his life, death, resurrection, and how um, we as as Protestants have have somewhat gotten away from from that as something that was just established by the the church and and not in the Bible. But at the same time, we're kind of losing some of the the benefit of having the, those rhythms, mm -hmm. which I thought was was really interesting and really compelling. And you know, I think with communion, we have this we have an opportunity to like reestablish that sort of rhythm. Um, and, you know, I think we're trying to figure out exactly how to do that at, at compass. Yeah. Um, you know, we had been doing, it was, I guess, a little bit hard for us to do communion with our, our, um, our current location, but we're trying to figure out how to do that on a more regular basis. And so I'm excited to see how that plays out for us. Yeah, and every church does it differently. You know, I, I know there are there are churches out there that I mean you could get communion I think any day in a Catholic church. You can, there's a daily mass and you can go get communion any day of the week 
Um, in the early church, it seems like it was a weekly communal meal that they would celebrate and um, that the bread and the wine would be sort of taken out of that context and remembered in some special way at that weekly meal. Um, at least that's what 1 Corinthians 11 seems to indicate, although we don't really know for sure. The Bible, I mean, like the New Testament really just doesn't tell answer all our questions on that. That's what it, that's what it seems to indicate, but we can't be 100% sure. And I know I know churches that do it like once a quarter. Uh, we grew up doing it once a year, which seems to be like the minimum amount that you should do it. We used to do it around Passover, which I think, you know, definitely we should be doing communion around Passover. I think that's a great time to do it, but I think we should be doing it more than that. Um, I think we've settled on at Compass right now once a month. Uh, that's sort of what we can do. And yeah. uh, we can't, you know, take the communion in the actual sanctuary that we meet in, um, at least the one that we meet in right now. Um, it's not available for us to have food and drink uh, like that inside of inside of that sanctuary. Um, so, you know, we're sort of limited by that, but we can still have it out in the foyer, which is where we had it uh, last Sunday. And so... I'm looking forward to seeing what what monthly communion looks like. And, um, you know, I also think that, you know, we have two small groups where we have, you know, meals on Tuesday nights. We have meals on Friday. You know, your small group has a meal on Friday nights. And I think, you know, whether we call it, whether we have like a special like bread and wine time or bread and juice time or not, like a lot of the elements of communion are happening in those small groups, whether we want to call it out specifically or not. And I think that's, that's, really great too you know i think there's a lot of a lot of things that are there that are really positive so see so yeah, i'm looking forward to seeing what this does uh for us as well and yeah i agreed with tim Mackey and the the uh, calendar and and getting a rhythm down and uh you know there we we both grew up in you know protestant Christianity, which has lost a lot of a lot of those rhythms that high church, you know, the Episcopalians and the Catholics and Orthodox friends of ours, brothers and sisters, um, have they experience? And I'm I'm trying to see what <laughs> what they've got going on there because I think some of it makes a lot of sense. And yeah so- i i heard I heard some advice uh, from someone I respected a while ago, and it it basically amounted to uh, before you get rid of something make sure you understand why it's there yeah um yeah and you know i think i think a lot of us that grew up in protestant christianity we we know we know why things aren't there but we don't understand why they were there in the first place right um and you know a lot of things have been removed and and rightfully removed but yeah um i think some other things were probably taken away without a full understanding of why they were there, or maybe it was, um, it was no longer needed at that time, but maybe it's something that we might need now you know, mm, just mm-hmm. on our current cultural context. So um, yeah, I, I've found a lot of value from, you know, just really trying to understand why something was, was there in the first place. Cause it, it, it was there for a reason. It might not have been the right reason or, right. Um, or something like that, but there, there are a lot of things that um, that we should probably understand before we just get rid of them. Yeah, I remember a conversation I had. And this was a really good wake up call for me. My first serious girlfriend in college was Eastern Orthodox, and uh, we had a conversation about the Lord's Prayer. And one of the things I said is, I said, "Look, like we're not just supposed to, you know, like repeat these kinds of prayers over and over again." And she pointed out, no, it's not that we're not supposed to repeat them. It's that we're not supposed to repeat them vainly. And I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> you know, it's it's vain repetition that God doesn't yeah. want. And, and so I think with a lot of these things, whether it's whether it's communion or whether it's the Lord's Prayer or whether it, you know, name another ritual from high church, if it's the church calendar writ large, you know, whatever you want to say about these different things, Um you know, certainly I think there was a, a reaction to those things by our parents' generation in the 60s and 70s and 80s. There was probably a healthy reaction. It was probably like those things had become vain repetitions in some of those contexts, or at least exactly. our parents' generation interpreted them as vain repetitions. And so there was like the swinging of the pendulum the other way. And like you said, now our generation has to do the difficult task of going back to each one of these things and saying, well, like, is there value in 
this or is or is or is it still vain is there was there a reason for it that we can still appreciate and so i think i think that's what we're trying to do what our generation is trying to do is is figure all that stuff out afresh and i think it's it's an exciting it's an exciting thing to go through these things and not just discard them because they're associated with high church <laughs> to just reevaluating it for what what they are so it's exciting all right so we finally got to it there's a lot of depth to this conversation about firstborn and i like i think very 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 minimally scratched the surface on sunday did not really have a lot of time uh, to talk about the firstborn so I know we've both done a lot of research on it. I'd love to hear your thoughts. What are some of the deeper thoughts that you've had about firstborn, things that you learned that we just couldn't make it into the sermon on Sunday? Yeah, so there was a there's a whole Bible project uh, podcast series on on the firstborn that I found super helpful. Mm. Um, and I, I guess one of the things that stood out to me was um, you know, how we tend to bring our modern day understanding of what something means, like, yeah, I think often that's unintentional, right? Like you can't help but see firstborn and, and think, oh, that's, you know, the first child that's, you know, um, whatever that means, like not a middle child, not a youngest child, right? Like that there's a lot of social science nowadays around, um, you know, middle children versus oldest children. There's, I think there's someone on Instagram who is like, has a whole following and he only makes videos that make fun of like older children versus. Yeah. Middle. He's a middle child, by the way. Yeah. And I love sharing that with my brother, Zach, who I'm the oldest and he's the middle child. Don't even get me started about middle children. They, uh, they're, they're not cracked. All they're cracked up to be. That's all I'll say. I'm going to make sure Zach hears that too. He, yeah. uh, he's got a lot of gripes, but I don't know how much, how much, uh, substances behind those gripes that's the oldest child in me fighting back so yeah so like i'm a firstborn you're a firstborn yep really easy to just kind of bring that you know self-inflated idea of what firstborn means into 100 percent we're, we're by far the most important people in the word, world yeah. you know yeah um but i just found it super fascinating to see how it um how it was used and uh particularly how um how that concept kind of represented their cultural understanding of it. And then how God sub like subverted that mm. cultural understanding. Um, mm -hmm. So one way that I thought of this um, as I was kind of listening to those podcasts and researching it a little bit more is, um, you know, if you think about an ancient, you know, a, a farmer in an agricultural society in the ancient world, um, like what's the best way to build security for your future? You know, is it your employer's 401k? Is it your government's social security program? Do you invest in real estate? Right. Like, how, like what's your retirement plan? Right? right. And of course the answer is like, those things don't exist and <laughs> they haven't existed for like the vast majority of human history. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so like the way that they would secure their future was through their family. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they wanted to have, they want to make sure their family had proper structure and leadership. Um, and the way that they would do this is they, they had a special role and inheritance for the firstborn male child in their family. Uh, I think the, the way the Bible project described it as, is they were essentially like the king of their little family, mm -hmm. right? They were the, the heir. And you know, we, we still see this concept in, um, in like monarchies across, across the world. Um, yep. The UK has some form of of mm -hmm. this like, male succession. I know it's not totally the same, um, and the rules have changed recently. I think they're they're starting yeah, to make I, allowances for like uh, yeah. common born wives and things like that. Yeah, but no, you're exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So like, what, one thing this understanding did for me is it it added a little bit of a uh, of color to the impact of Pharaoh and the Egyptians killing the Hebrew male babies yeah. right it's not just about killing the children but it's about like destroying their future and mm. hampering this up and coming like immigrant power essentially yeah uh, you know if you go ahead and kill the the future heirs of all their families so to speak 
then um, you're, it's, it's a humongous blow to their their future. Um, so like essentially the, this like concept of the firstborn, it's like a, an ancient man-made power structure that they would have it. Um, I think the, another way the Bible project describes it um, as is it's basically like deciding who would be in charge mm -hmm. concept of the firstborn. And so, you know, in, in Eden, God, like a God was to be the one who humans look to for, for guidance and for direction. Um, humans obviously rebelled against that mm -hmm. and humans want to decide who among themselves is in charge and they want to ensure that the people that they want are in charge and that their interests are, are represented. And so they, they kind of built this power structure of like passing down power to the firstborn male child. Um, and it's, it's interesting to see all the ways in, in the Bible that um, number one, like humans totally mess up in trying to like preserve this thing Right. Right. We see that with Jacob and, and Esau, um, lots of other examples of this. Um, and then it's also interesting to see how God consistently subverts this idea of the firstborn. You know, we see this with with David, right? He's he's the youngest and scrawniest of his 12 brothers. Right. Um, but then he's the one that is brave enough to kill Goliath and is elevated to king. Um, in Psalm 89, 27. It's it's referring to David and it says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so it's, you know, in that verse, it's not talking about David as the literal firstborn male, because he's not. Right. right. Not even his own family. Yeah. 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 It's kind of using that that term that they would use um in their cultural context and saying that like God is going to make him the one that's in charge, mm -hmm. which I, I thought was super fascinating. And then, there, and then there's an obvious link between Jesus, um, you know, the, the humble servant who comes from Nazareth, a place that's not, not respected. Um, and, you know, in, in, in Philippians 2, 8, it says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then in, in Colossians 1, verse 15, and in some of the translations, I think the CSB and the NET have it rendered that um, he was elevated to the position of firstborn over all creation. Right. Um, which is a, a different understanding of what firstborn means there. Like he's he's the one that God has selected to be in charge over all creation. Mm -hmm. And it, it really fits God's pattern of subverting that that concept. So it's less referring to birth order necessarily um and more like the one that god has chosen to be in charge of uh, mm. his humility and and meekness i, I think that's a, an interesting option for understanding that verse yeah i mean at the end of the book of genesis we get probably the the greatest example of what the firstborn was that's Joseph, who's not the firstborn. He's the firstborn of the favored wife, sure, but he's like the eleventh oldest uh, of, of of the of the brothers, and uh, you know ends up getting sold into slavery and ends up in prison, and then gets elevated to being the second in command in the largest empire of the world at that time. And uh, but you know he wasn't he wasn't the firstborn. <laughs> you know, he wasn't, yeah. you know, he was, he was elevated to that. He was given special status by his dad before he was even sold into slavery. You know, he was given that title of a firstborn or that status of being favored, being the largest heir and, uh, but paid for it. And, um, and yeah, and had to suffer quite a bit in the meantime. And he, of course, becomes the precursor for, for Jesus in that sense and the elevation of Jesus to being second in command in the universe now, just below God the Father. Um, and in one of the contexts, it talks about uh, firstborn of many brothers, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In the middle of that chapter, it says, look, you know, God's going to subdue all his enemies. He's going to reign. And then he's going to return the kingdom to his father. And, and Paul says something very interesting. He says, I don't even, I shouldn't even have to tell you that he's 
everything subjected to Jesus, except for the one who subjected all things to him, and that's his father. And so we have the Pharaoh God parallel and the Joseph Jesus parallel in that kind of uh, conversation. And then firstborn is mentioned there. Um, so yeah, it's the firstborn is definitely a, a huge concept. Um, one of the things that, that I was thinking about uh, too in, in the Exodus, he almost passed over by Rabbi Foreman. One of the things that he talks about is he talks about the nation being the firstborn of God and how God had a really high vision for that nation and what he wanted. You know, he's like, what do firstborn sons do? Or what do first, what is the firstborn supposed to do? They're supposed to reflect the interests of the parents. And so when you have God who he calls like the transcendent parent or something like that in the book, the Exodus yeah. almost passed over, he says, you know, so God's a transcendent parent. He wants Israel, the whole nation to be his firstborn son. I think when we look at that, we can see, uh, you know, like some of the language that comes later in Exodus, like 19, when it talks about, you know, you're going to be a kingdom of uh, a nation of, of priests, kings and priests, you know, you're going to be priests. He wanted them to be priests to the whole world. So this idea of like even Israel becoming the firstborn son, it wasn't, um, there was reigning involved and there was uh, status involved with that and favor involved with that. But there's also like this responsibility piece. I think like you point out that Jesus so like magnificently exemplified and exemplifies present um, that never bore out in the nation of Israel. You know, they continuously have problems and they never really rise to the challenge of being the firstborn son. Um, And then Jesus does, you know, he, he is obedient and obedient, even as you said, in Philippians two, even obedient to the death of the cross. So it's just sort of a remarkable, you know, Jesus like gets it. He gets like what Israel was supposed to be. And he embodied what Israel was supposed to be. And um, so he, he is the firstborn, you know, he, he takes on that status and, and instead of the firstborn gaining favor, like I mentioned on Sunday, the firstborn dies for us. It's like not, like upside down like the firstborn should be the one who's enjoying the the status and the favor and the prestige and the blessings and all that and instead he he fights our battle for us you know it's a remarkable thing yeah that uh that section in in the exodus you almost passed over you, you talked about like it that really struck me as like really fitting well with the understanding of like Israel being a, a light to the nations, right? Yes, like exactly. it was, it wasn't just that, you know, Israel was God's child and like the rest of the world was not like, you know, God's chosen people. Israel was God's chosen people and the rest of the world was, was God, was not God's chosen people. Right. Right. It was more so like, this is how God was going to about, was going to go about, ruling the world like bringing the rest of the world under his reign and rule was through this nation that would hopefully represent his interests right Mm -hmm. and would like be um a light to the nations and hopefully bring you know succeed in bringing them all um under his reign and rule and so i i just thought that was super fascinating and it it fits perfectly well with who jesus is right Mm -hmm. um so yeah, that was a really compelling explanation and understanding to me as well. Yeah, and, and part of me wonders, and maybe this is heretical, but part of me wonders, like, what would have happened if Israel had been faithful? You know, like, what if they had been a light to the nations? Like, what if they didn't need to go into Babylon and have exile and experience all that pain? Like, you know all these other empires like Egypt eventually falls and it becomes like Assyria and Babylon. And then Assyria wanes and Babylon gets bigger. And then, you know, it's Greece after that. And then Rome after that. And that's when Jesus comes. But like, part of me wonders um, like what would have happened if Israel had been faithful, like post Solomon, you know, like they get to Solomon and their faith, Solomon's faithful. They stay united. Like, do they keep growing? Like, does do they do they take over Assyria and Egypt and Babylon and like spread throughout that whole part of the world? 
and bring the goodness of God to like all of that. Like I, I just, it's, it's, it, it, you know, we'll have to ask God, but uh, you know, I just wonder like, you know, he talks about in the Exodus, he almost passed over that there were like these three plans for the Exodus plan, a plan B and plan C and plan a is like, that Pharaoh does what the Pharaoh and Joseph's day did, which is like send an yeah. honor guard and like leave the, let lead them out and like not just let them go, but bless them on the way out. And obviously that didn't happen. And you had to get the 10 plagues and you had to get the Red Sea crossing, which we're going to do this Sunday. And all these, you know, crazy things happen along the way. But I just wonder, like, was there a plan A for humanity salvation? Like, does Jesus come like and basically do like a one world government kind of thing in the ancient world like i I don't know it's it's interesting to think about like what jesus's ministry would have looked like if israel had been faithful um i I think it's probably inevitable that that israel's not faithful just because of the sin problem and that's probably the right answer which is probably how we end up with jesus the way that he did we probably end up with that no matter what but it is sort of interesting to think about like what would israel's history have looked like had they been faithful and how would that have changed what the empire looked like, the empire of Israel um, that doesn't expand beyond Solomon, you know? So anyway, interesting, interesting questions. Maybe our listeners will have some thoughts on that too. Well, uh, anything more on firstborn before we wrap up or any other thoughts on the sermon in general? I think we pretty much covered it. You know, like you mentioned, this is just a really rich topic that there was absolutely no way it was going to fit into the <laughs> sermon timeline. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think it really adds a lot of um a lot of richness to the the understanding of what it means for Israel to be God's firstborn. And hmm. I really enjoyed researching that myself. And you know, highly recommend the Bible projects. Uh, firstborn podcast series um, really m- most of their podcast series I would say are are pretty interesting and helpful yeah for sure yeah we, we promote the Bible project a lot because they've got a lot of great stuff out there they're both their Exodus series their 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 Exodus scroll uh, with Tim and John uh, sort of their more regular format. And then the Carmen Imes class are both great. And then, like you said, the firstborn podcast series with Tim and John, um, it's also great. Well, um, and then, yeah, Exodus, you almost passed over. We've been pumping that book up a lot too, but that it's, it's really helpful. It's, it's really been a blessing for, for me and for, I know the other people that have been working on these sermons, it's been very helpful. So, well, thank you so much, John. I really appreciate your time and sitting down with me, uh, Hope you have a great rest of your evening, brother. Yeah, thanks for having me, Will. Thanks for joining us on this deep dive. I want to close by thanking Dave Tench for his musical contributions and Paula Ely for her help with design and editing. We'll catch you next time. Let's continue to follow Jesus together.